0: and welcome to the bunker i'm your host andrew harrison if you're a russian business leader and you're not too keen on the ukraine war don't stand near a window this has become a standing joke in the west given the remarkable number of unexplained deaths among the russian business elite over the past year over two dozen russian oligarchs business owners bureaucrats and politicians have died in surprising circumstances all over the world there's Ravel Maganov, chairman of Russian oil company Lukoil, who fell out of a hospital window in Moscow in September. There's Vladislav Avayev, ex-president of Gazprom Bank, who was found dead in a Moscow apartment with the bodies of his wife and daughter in April in what Kommersant newspaper claimed was a murder-suicide. There is sausage millionaire Pavel Antov, who fell out of the window of an Indian hotel in December, a few days after one of his companions apparently suffered a fatal stroke in the very same hotel. And don't forget gas company manager Alexander Sobotin, who died in a Moscow shaman's home after accidentally ingesting toad venom. What is going on, and what does it tell us about the state of play within Vladimir Putin's Russia? Bill Browder knows the Putin universe well, and it knows him. He had his $4.5 billion investment company, Hermitage Capital Management, swindled out from under him by the Russian tax authorities. And the man he hired to investigate it, Sergei Magnitsky, died in a Russian prison. Browder subsequently lobbied the U.S. Congress to pass the Magnitsky Act, which has led to the sanctioning of 30 Russians connected with the Magnitsky case. And his book, Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath, is out now in paperback. Hello, Bill Browder. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, You experienced firsthand the lengths that the Putin regime will go to to punish its enemies. Are you surprised that this kind of violence is reaching Putin's inner support group?
1: Um, not at all. Um, but, but I should point out that, that all of these deaths, which, by the way, are, there's something accidental about them. They're murders. But I should point out that these murders are not because these guys are somehow uh, political dissidents who are standing up against Putin's war in Ukraine or are in some way in opposition to Vladimir Putin. Not a single one of these people has done anything that remotely um, resembles what a real Russian dissident looks like. I know plenty of them. Um, most of them are either dead or in jail. Um, but none of these guys are dissidents. What these guys all share is one common denominator, which is that they're all businessmen. They're all businessmen who sit in front of either a large cash flow or, or a large pot of money. And um, as the Russian uh, economy grinds to a halt because of sanctions, all of these guys um, are in the crossfire of people much more powerful and dangerous than them who are fighting over the money. And so what you have here is basically just a mafia scramble for money in a country where money is more important than human life and where it means nothing to kill somebody in order to get that money.
0: So it's not accurate then to sort of draw a line back to Putin on these killings because there's such a strange uh, mixture of people and methods.
1: It's it's not. It, it may have everything to do with Putin, basically, as far as money goes. But it doesn't have anything to do with Putin as far as politics, war, um, opposition goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and and for for what it's worth, you know, the way I analyze it is that you have different mafia clans who are all struggling now financially, and and all these people are just getting killed because of their involvement, some one way or another, in the money, and so. Um, yes, it involves Putin because he's the ultimate mafia boss, but it doesn't involve Putin in the sense that he's saying, oh, that guy over there uh, who runs the sausage factory, he looked at me the wrong way about the war. I'm going to kill him. No, the guy who runs the sausage factory. Somebody else wanted his sausage factory. They went to him, asked him for the sausage factory. He probably said no. Uh, they killed him, took the sausage factory. And then the next sausage guy they went to, they've said you know, when we want your sausage factory, you better hand it over. Look what happened to the last guy.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been such, as I say, such a strange mix. There's been ski resort directors, gas industry executives, shipyard uh, executives. The names that I pulled out there are, you know, we're almost at random. Are there any of these killings that have struck you as politically significant or are they all kind of mob hits?
1: No, the, the, none of these guys are in any way politically significant. But the, the only thing I can say is that politics and money are all the same thing in Russia. You can't be powerful without money. You can't have money without having power, and so they're politically significant in that, that these are all very important businesses: Gazprom, Bank, and uh, um, you know the, the shipyards and all this kind of stuff. This the common denominator is that they're all big businesses where, where there's money flowing through, or there's there's a lot of assets there, and that's that's what this is all about.
0: And yet, some of them do have uh, Putin connections, either either close or sort of uh, two or three times removed. One of them, the oil magnate uh, Vyacheslav Rovnienko, uh, was a former KGB officer. He was close to one of Putin's most loyal oligarchs, a billionaire called Gennady Timchenko. Um, d- are these killings touching Putin at all? I mean, it may be that people are, are killed in in uh, in mob violence, but some of them are close to him. Well, so what
1: this reminds me of is, is
0: um, we've seen waves of
1: uh, economic wars taking place in, in times in Russia. There was the aluminum wars when I first got there in the 1990s. There was the bankers' wars, and now what you have is is the uh, what I call the cash flow wars. And so, um, you know, some somebody may have been a friend of Putin or may have been in the KGB. That's how they got to be where they are today. But it doesn't mean that Putin has any particular loyalty to any of these people. You know, if if, if um, one of his top lieutenants um, is trying to get the money, and um, this guy and some lower down guy is standing in the way, you know, Putin will think, oh, that's too bad for him. But you know shouldn't have stood in the
0: way. I mean, if the war has uh, as you say, ground the Russian economy to a halt and stopped the cash flow, um, this is clearly not going down well with uh, with with the Russian business world. Is there any way of sensing um, their own attitude towards Putin or is Putin somebody that they will simply never challenge? Well, so
1: it's it's really interesting. Uh, these oligarchs, you know we think of them as being independently wealthy. But they're, they're not independently wealthy. They're totally dependently wealthy on Vladimir Putin. At any moment, he could take away their money, he could take away their freedom, or he could take away their life. Everybody understands that. And so if you see any of these guys, um, you know, in, by themselves in, in the wild, so to speak, they all behave like these, you know, horribly aggressive, terribly unpleasant, uh, uh, toxic uh Aggressive type people, but the moment you put them in a room with Putin they be, be behave like these um totally subservient animals you know ready to to do anything to please their master and um I don't believe that any of them have the guts um or or even the capability to do anything bad to Putin he's constantly on the lookout for disloyalty uh, he's he tries to even create disloyalty using different tricks and tools. To see who you know, uh, who who might be uh, vulnerable,
0: and then he takes them out. So the naive kind of barroom takeover here, as well. You know, when it turns out that Putin's bad for business, that's the point at which uh, something will be done. Are you saying that's a completely naive way of looking at things?
1: Uh, that that doesn't take into account the reality of what's happening in Russia. It's it's just a um, uh, it's just a t- total uh, red herring, and if, if and I, I certainly wouldn't. Build a, a, a policy around that 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 thought because there's it's just not going to happen.
0: You set up at Hermitage Capital in the late 1990s when you know from the perspective of the West, Russia looked like the Wild West. It, state assets were being sold off to cronies at a pittance. Assassinations were common, as you just described. The oligarchs were coming into being. Do you do you personally ever regret getting involved in this uh, because it's it's shaped your life in so many ways?
1: Yeah. I mean, and people often ask me, you know, what would I have done differently in my whole story? And and the simple answer is, um, if I could have just avoided going to Russia in the first place, a lot of people's lives would have been saved. And I wouldn't have spent the last 15 years of my life fighting with Vladimir Putin. But would you still do it? No. I, if I If hmm. I knew then what I know now, I would have absolutely not done it. I would have... I, I graduated from Stanford Business School in 1989, um, and I came I came to uh, Europe and then ultimately to Russia after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, but if I could do it all over again, I would have stayed in California. I would have worked in technology, and I wouldn't have been, had to worry about being killed every day.
0: Mm. Was there ever a moment, you think, when Russia could have evolved into the sort of liberal democratic system that uh, the kind of more optimistic dreamers in the West thought it could?
1: Well, the problem was that we created this sort of expectation that when they had democracy in the 1990s and a freedom of speech and freedom of the press, that it was just going to be like us. But what we didn't uh, pay attention to was that um, it was like building a house um, without putting in plumbing and electricity. And, and plumbing and electricity in this particular case would be uh, rule of law, property rights, uh, institutions, independent courts. and um, And so it really was. Sort of almost doomed from the very beginning because you can't have democracy if you don't have law enforcement. You can't have democracy if, if um, uh, you know, if you don't have uh, have a, a way of, of adjudicating things in court. It's it's and everything became completely bastardized almost from the very beginning, and and you ended up with twenty two oligarchs who and who controlled forty percent of the GDP of Russia, and everybody else living in destitute poverty. And that was those were the circumstances that that Vladimir Putin took advantage of to rise to power.
0: You were quite pro Putin in his early years in power, weren't you? Because he was dealing with corruption. Um, what, what was it that you saw in him then that made you feel optimistic at that time?
1: So indeed, I was pro Putin at the very beginning. So Putin came into power um, in 1999 and became president near 2000, and he succeeded a man named Boris Yeltsin, and Boris Yeltsin. Was a um, uh, uh, he had a couple of good big ideas about democracy and freedom of speech, but he was a, a crook. He was um, uh, an alcoholic. He allowed these oligarchs to get so rich at the expense of everybody else, um, and and he was really just like an incapable guy. and And as as things went on and on, and the chaos got worse and worse, uh, everybody was hoping that. Um, somehow the situation would change. And one day Yeltsin decided that he couldn't carry on anymore. He had heart disease. He thought he was just, he just, he couldn't do it anymore. And so he needed to pick a successor who, um, who could pardon him on day one and then carry on and, and um, be the president to make sure that the pardon stuck. And he chose a bunch of different people for this job. Uh, And Putin is actually his fourth choice after the first three didn't work out. And, um, and Putin came in, and nobody knew who he was. He has this amazing capacity to like have a blank face. If you look at his face, you can't see. You know, he doesn't show any emotion. And at the very beginning, he had a couple of attributes that made everybody feel pretty good, including myself. One is he wasn't drunk. Um, two, he sort of showed up to the office every day and did the job of sort of rudimentary job of being president, and and he started to implement some some basic economic reforms, which. All seemed pretty good and pretty reasonable, and and um, I I, and many others, and and it wasn't just me. We're all saying, "Great, you know, we have this reformer now. This uh, he's not charismatic, but he's a technocrat, and he can get stuff done. And you know, in in time, Russia will go from horrible to bad. And um, there's lots of money to be made during that transition, and and it's it'll be very satisfying to watch Russia go in the direction of a normal country." But then um, uh, Putin decided that he wanted to just become the biggest oligarch himself. And he did did so by arresting uh, the previously biggest oligarch, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrests him and puts him on trial. He allows the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial sitting in a cage. And it had the most profound effect on the rest of the oligarchs. They went to Putin and said, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage? And Putin said 50%. And that was the moment he became the richest man in the world.
0: It's so strange that he kind of projects this, apart from the giant tables of the huge DACA, this is not a guy who projects opulence. He just, as you described, he's like a blank space.
1: Well, he doesn't project opulence, but but um, take a good look. There, There's a... Uh, a video called Putin's Palace, which is about this mm-hmm. $1.4 billion house that was built by the oligarchs for Putin on the Black Sea, a $1.4 billion house. The oligarchs gave him for uh, New Year's a couple of years ago, uh, a three quarters of a billion dollar yacht, the uh, um, which you can also look up on the internet. And so Putin, I mean, he's, he um, he's the richest man in the world. And He loves his luxuries. He just loves them. I mean, there's no question. Did you ever meet him? I've never met him, no.
0: Did you ever have it communicated to you what he thought of you?
1: Well, he's made it pretty clear in recent years what he's thought of me. I'm thinking in the early years. In the early years, I have no idea what he thought of me. But (laughs) what I know for sure is that um, I, I have gotten under his skin in a way that almost no other human being has in the last 20 years, I mean, I I was Mm. responsible for a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky act, which is named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of Russian human rights violators. And, um, this, this went straight to the, to the heart of the Putin regime. He, he steals, he kills people, steals money and he keeps it in the West. And all of a sudden I put his money at risk. And so what is, what is, uh, you know, he, he gets really mad. It's, you know, as, as I've said before, you know, they, they value money more than human life. And here I've put all this money that he accumulated at risk. And um, now normally, Putin never mentions the name of his enemies. It's like this mafia thing. You don't personalize your enemy um, because hmm. it's easier to kill them. And so when he's talking about Alexei Navalny, who is um, one of the big opposition leaders, he says that, that blogger or that lawyer, he doesn't say Alexei Navalny. Similarly, mm-hmm. he doesn't talk about Zelensky. Um, you know, he says the you know the president of that illegitimate country. But in my case, he got so angry that that I broke through his poker face, his whole mafia bravado. And he mentions my name, and when he does, he, his face gets snarled up in an anger, and you can just feel it and hear it and see it. He is just so so upset by what I've done.
0: Your friend Sergei Magnitsky, for whom the act is named, uh, died in prison for investigating the the drummed up charges of a, of a of a tax fraud in Russia. What kind of a what kind of a guy was Sergei Magnitsky?
1: Sergei was was a guy who could have been the face of new Russia. He was a hardworking, um, professional lawyer. He believed in God. He believed in his country. He believed in honesty. He lived in a in a smart but modest two-bedroom apartment. I think he drove a Toyota car. And, um, and he was a man of incredible principle and integrity. And when he discovered a, a massive $230 million crime, uh, tax rebate fraud had been committed by government officials against his own country, he, um, he decided to act. He decided to um, call for justice, call for them to be prosecuted. He testified against those officials. He publicly named them. And um, in retaliation for that, he was arrested. Um, he was tortured for 358 days. They tortured him. They tried to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the money. And he did so on in my instructions. Um, Sergei refused to do that. And the torture got worse and worse and worse. Um, he ended up getting terrible uh, pains in his stomach. He was diagnosed as having pancreatitis. Uh, and gallstones. They were supposed to operate him, operate on him on the first of August, two thousand nine. Instead, they they said sign a false confession, and then then we'll operate. He refused to sign the confession. Uh, they refused him all medical treatment after that. It got worse and worse and worse. And um, on the night of November 16, thousand nine, Sergei Magnitsky um, was beaten to death by eight riot guards with rubber batons. And um, his. Principle
0: and integrity um, are effectively what killed him. Have we used the Magnitsky Acts properly in the West? Because there are many now, aren't there? there are, in, in other countries, have have similar legislation.
1: Well, there are 35 countries that now have the Magnitsky Act, and um, and it's starting to be used properly. It was used in Sergei Magnitsky's case by a number of countries uh, here in the UK, in the US, Canada, Australia, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, uh, but but it's it's a um, it's a hard piece of legislation to get the governments to implement because it's always there's always going to be somebody on the other side that's screaming bloody murder afterwards and governments particularly the foreign office doesn't want to have anybody screaming bloody murder from a, from one of their counterpart countries and so um, it's still still early days I spent a lot of my time uh, lobbying different governments to take more robust measures and, and sanction more
0: people. Um, but it's still early days. We're now into the second year of the Ukraine war. And uh, you've written uh, in the mail, actually, that the war the war in general is Putin's go-to move in times of ebbing popularity. He did it in Chechnya and Georgia. He did it first in Ukraine in 2014. Now he's done it again. This one's going especially badly. Is there any way to end it without Ukraine defeating Russia entirely on the battlefield no
1: the only way for this war to end is either ukraine wins which is our hugely hoped for outcome or russia wins in which case the war doesn't end there it just moves on to the next country and and most horribly the possibility that it moves on to a nato country so um and, and there's no middle ground. It's not like there's a compromise somewhere in the middle. Putin can't compromise because if he does, he looks weak. If he looks weak, he could lose his job. If he loses his job, he'll be killed. And on the Ukrainian side, they've been so brutalized, raped, tortured, murdered, that they're not going to give up either. And so the only thing we can hope for is a, a definitive Ukrainian victory.
0: I did read a few uh, tweets to the effect that the reason the Ukrainians are so... Uh, into and simply refuse to to give in is that they know what the rusky Mir, the Russian world, is like. Many of them have lived in it. They know they know what a hopeless sphere of existence that is.
1: It's it's really horrifying, I and mean, we we've seen it. Everybody has seen it. You remember Bucha, which is a suburb of mm. Kiev. After the Russians left it, and they found hundreds of people with their hands tied behind their backs, with bullets to the back of their heads. Women raped and then killed. Children taken away from their families it's um there's there's no way that anybody in ukraine will want to have any kind of compromise because um that means that that more people will be brutalized tortured and killed
0: uh, earlier i mentioned the kind of uh fond fantasy that business might remove putin there's also a fantasy that some rational general will reach the end of their tether uh and remove the president is that equally naive
1: i think that that's not even remotely possible It's as it's uh there's such he's got such great security around him and and he's always looking for disloyalty and so i don't think that's going to happen
0: so how do we get to a place where ukraine can defeat russia on the battlefield
1: it's very simple we have to provide them with every weapon they ask for if they want jets we give them jets if they want more tanks we give them more tanks If they want long-range artillery we give them long-range artillery this is this is the best deal we could ever be doing. Ukraine is is fighting for all of us. They're fighting the Russians on our behalf, and um, you know, for five percent of the U.S. military budget, the um, Ukrainians can effectively destroy the Russian military with no loss of American lives. Seems like a good deal to me.
0: How do you feel when you see scenes like at say CPAC in the United States last week, where you see? various leaders of the Republican Party saying uh, words to the effect that we shouldn't be sending um, American treasure to defend a faraway country and that this has nothing to do with us.
1: Uh, I feel very um, upset when I hear them saying that, but I'm a little bit comforted by the fact that this is really the fringe. This This is not the mainstream of the Republican Party. And it makes me feel even happier to see if you look at these speeches and you walk to the back of the room or you get a video from the back of the room like in some cases the room is entirely empty you know nobody seems mm. to be all that enthused about all this stuff and so i don't think that it's it's a foregone conclusion that the republicans are going to um uh, for, throw the ukrainians to the wolves if they get elected um i think it's it's very un, uh, unlikely actually in in the final analysis
0: finally how how do you think Ukraine Russia episode will end are you I mean saying optimistic under the circumstances seems kind of crass considering we're talking about the deaths of tens of thousands of people and the brutalization of hundreds of thousands of people possibly millions but can you feel optimistic
1: no I feel highly pessimistic um I think that this thing is going to go on for a very long time I don't think either side has any capacity to um give in negotiate and certainly the Ukrainians shouldn't and um I I fear this is going to be a a long, drawn-out conflict. We'll be sitting here a year or two years from now and facing the
0: same ugly choices. Bill Browder, thanks for joining us. It's been sobering and fascinating. Thank you. Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath is out now in paperback. Listeners, remember, you can keep the bunker going by backing us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening to this edition We'll see you tomorrow. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back Wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producers were Alex Rees and Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by Thomas Rojas. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.